1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church at, Thessal to, at Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we are among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy and the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that you do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we have in you, and how you turn out to God from turns to God from idols to serve the living God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, who raised from the dead even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. May the Lord add his blessing as our pastor brings us the word. Have you ever wondered what someone else thinks about you? Have you ever wondered what God really thinks about you? Someone said, and I think it's I think there's some wisdom in this. Someone said, "You are not who you think you are. You are not who others think you are." You are who you think others think you are. In other words, we're very much influenced by what we think other people think about us. What if we apply that to God? What do we think God thinks about us? It makes a difference. Our feelings about ourselves often dictate how we think God thinks about us, and then that affects more of how we think about ourselves. It's sometimes very easy to look at our weaknesses and our faults and our failings, isn't it? Do you find sometimes you're just kind of down in the dumps as you think about the mistakes you've made and the weaknesses you've had? 
And so we can, as a result, feel very unworthy. Very unworthy. Very undeserving. And so God must think the same way about us. But, does God think that way about us? How is he looking at us? And what does that do to us? What if we understood that God thinks differently? That God thinks about us as his servant. Now, a servant. That's not anything to be... A great vision. You know, great mission of my life is to be a servant. We don't usually think about that. Of course, in... Here in middle-class America, we often don't have any servants in our lives as far as a, a servant in the household or something like that. But we do have servants when we go to the store and people are serving us at the store or at the, at the restaurant or whatever. But usually that's a servant job is only a transitional job. I'm, I'm a waitress so that I can become an actress, right? That's the old story. I'm, just a, I'm really an actress, but I'm just waiting on tables to earn enough money till I get my big break. Or I am serving at the grocery store just so I can earn money to go to college and become a lawyer or whatever, right? But do you know that there is a man today who is worth $450 million dollars who wants to be a servant to someone else? He's applied for that job. And he's going through confirmation. His name is Rex Tillerson. He's been the CEO of ExxonMobil, and he's worth $450 million, and he's 64 years old. I mean, if you're 64 years old and you're worth $450 million, isn't it time to retire? And nobody's going to tell you what to do because you can do whatever you please. Right? But he wants to be a servant to another man. And this other man is going to tell him what to do and where to go and what to say. Imagine. A servant. With all that money, he's going to be the servant to somebody else. Now, of course, the question is, who is going to tell someone with all that money what to do and where to go and what to say? Who is it going to be? The President of the United States. Does that make a difference? That makes a difference. That makes a difference. He's not listening to Cliff Gleason, I'll tell you that. But Rex Tillerson is willing to have somebody else tell him what to do as long as it's the president. Think about it. And really, he's, we wouldn't use the term servant for him, even though he's doing the bidding of someone else and all that. But we would call him more an ambassador, wouldn't we? In fact, he's the chief ambassador of the United States of America and the president of the United States, and he's going... To how many countries in the world is he the, is he the ambassador? To one country? Oh, all countries of the world, he's the ambassador. Now, other ambassadors may be to one country. He's the ambassador to all the countries. For how many, 
how, how many people in the United States is he the ambassador for? All 350 million of us, right? And so he's an ambassador. Now, do you know you and I are an ambassador? We're a servant of the Lord Jesus. Paul calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus. But, and we're servants. But we're also servants of the whole kingdom of Christ. We're ambassadors for the whole kingdom of Christ. You and I, we represent the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven. Imagine. That's something to think about. But more than ambassador, and this is something Tillerson can't complain, can't claim for himself. We're not just a servant and ambassador. We are a child of the king. A child of the king. Now that means we're an heir, a joint heir with Christ, the Bible says. Of all of heaven. Do we deserve that? Could we ever deserve that? If you could live a thousand years and obey every day for the rest of those thousand years, could you ever deserve all that is tied up with being a joint heir with Christ? You could never deserve that? Oh. And as a joint heir with Christ, guess where God wants you to sit when you get to heaven? On the throne. It's mentioned in Revelation 3, isn't it? He who overcomes as Jesus overcame will sit with Jesus on the throne as Jesus overcame and sat with his Father on the throne. We get to sit on the throne. Did we ever deserve that? Never. But that's what God wants for us. You see, this is his consistent attitude to you. What about when you're weak? Is it still the same? What about when you failed? Is it still the same? His love continues. His desire to honor you, to strengthen you, to have you understand your place as a child of God is still there. And so, understanding all this, then how would you feel? Then we feel that yes, for God, I am somebody. I am worth world. World. And how would you live then? When you understand. Well, let's find out about it. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're starting a journey through the two letters to the Thessalonians today. And we're doing chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. And it's uh, the letter is coming from Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. It's going to the church at Thessalonica. And uh, it's the church that belongs to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we belong to them. God claims us as his own. Is it just Jesus who wants you? No. Does the Father want you? Yes. The Father wants you. He loves you. And so how can we come to the throne of Jesus and the Father? Boldly, right? That's right. Hebrew says, come boldly. What's another word? Confidently. Confident in who? Confidence in ourselves and our worthiness? No, we could never have that. Even on our best day, we can't have it. But we're confident 
in God's attitude that we're worthy of his love. That we are the object of his care. Isn't that great? It's not us. It's him. It's him. It's all about him. It's all about him because he is full of grace. Remember it says, come to the throne of grace and you will receive mercy and grace. And here, Paul says in verse 2, we give thanks to God. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 1, it says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he mentions both Father and Jesus a second time in one verse. What is he trying to get across? Are these two separate or are they united? They're together in what? Together in loving you. Together in claiming you for their own. Together in being totally committed to your salvation so you can be with them forever. And so they give grace. Now grace is that we don't deserve it. You don't deserve God's favor. That's true. And it will always be true. You'll never really deserve it. Because His grace is so expansive, so wonderful, so marvelous. And it's always true that God does not work on the deserving way of relating to you. He's not waiting for you to deserve anything. He is all about grace. He sees your need and He wants to provide more than enough. More than enough for you. Not a little entrance into heaven. What does the Bible call it? An abundant entrance into heaven. That's what he, he has all the resources. And he's ready to pour out the riches of his grace on you and me. But grace isn't all. What's the second thing that you see there? Peace. Now, is there a lot of peace in this world? And if we, read, if we just go home and never read the Bible and we watch the news all the time, will we have peace? No peace. No peace. If we ignore the news and we ignore the Bible also, and we try to go out and we try to make our way and try to just do our lives the way we want to and the way we can do it, will we have peace? We won't have peace. Things will get messed up. But it says in... Romans it says we have peace with God because when we believe his grace when we believe I don't need to deserve it I don't need to earn it it's not in what I do it's all about him and the way he is I can have peace because I know he's that rock of grace that will never change he'll never let me down what is it that somebody says? God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. I tell you, that's meaning more and more to me. The more I study the gospel, the good news, I see that God can be relied upon to always want the best for me. So God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. I just need to hear that over and over every day. Now look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always. How often? Always. We give God thanks to God always for you all. It must have been southern here, I guess. For you all. Making mention of you in our prayers. So he's doing two things. He's giving thanks and he's praying. 
You know, Paul says in other places, he says, pray without ceasing. Have you ever wondered, how could I ever do that? How could I pray with never stopping? How do I do that? And then he says, rejoice in how many things? Rejoice in all things. How can I rejoice in all things? I mean, it's not like everything in this world is peachy keen and easy and smooth all the time. How can I rejoice in all things? Well, notice what he says. We give thanks to God always. Who, what was it for? For you all. Y'all. <laughs> give thanks for y'all. Or at some places they say, all y'all. And so, you see, what's the focus of the praise and the thanks and the prayer and the rejoicing? What is it? It's people. Did you notice that? It's people. So when you're praying without ceasing, what are you praying for an awful lot? People. When you're giving rejoicing in all things, you're rejoicing for the, the people. I'm just really amazed at what I read in the book, Desire of Ages, about the life of Christ. It says that, the, remember when Pilate was having the trial of Jesus and a messenger came and the wife, Pilate's wife, had had a dream that warned for Pilate to back off from condemning Jesus. Remember that? And there in the book it says that the prayer, I'm sorry, the dream that Pilate's wife received was from God in answer to the prayers of Jesus for Pilate. I tell you, I've pondered that. That is amazing. When Jesus is going into the person who can condemn him to death and the death of the cross and the scourging and all the other horrible things that were about to happen, and Jesus isn't thinking about what's going to happen to him, who is he thinking about? Pilate. He's thinking, poor Pilate is in such a terrible position between the, the, the work of the, uh, of the priests with Satan rousing them up to condemn Jesus and the Roman government wanting to stop any insedition and all this. And he's caught. And Jesus is thinking, oh, Father, what are we going to do for poor Pilate? Please, please send some kind of a message to warn him about what he's getting himself into that he has no understanding about. Do you think Jesus could pray like that? Apparently he did. He wasn't thinking about what was going to happen to him. He was rejoicing in a sense. If we can say it this way. He was rejoicing that there was still an opportunity to appeal to Pilate. Wow. Wow. That means you may have a difficulty in your life. You may have a trouble with your car. You may have trouble with a sale. You may have trouble at work. But it may be through your trouble that God is working to reach someone who couldn't be reached. And so, Lord, I rejoice that you're allowing this trouble 
because perhaps there's someone around me that you're reaching for eternity. Wow, isn't that something? That's something to ponder. How can I rejoice in all things that when it's rejoicing about the people and what God is doing to help people? All right, let's go on to verse 3. It says, remembering without ceasing. There's that without ceasing again. Remember without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience or endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God the Father. Now what is this faithful work? He's remembering all the time the faithful work. Well, is there work to be done in the church? Sure. There's work to be done in the church. In fact, God gives, through the Holy Spirit, he gives gifts to people for the work of ministry within the church. And is it just the pastor who's doing that? No, every baptized member, the Bible says they receive a gift from the Holy Spirit and a, a means of effectiveness in building up the body. There's work to be done, building up the body. So faithful work is to be true to duty that the Holy Spirit assigns to you for the meeting the needs of the church. Is that happening in our church? I see that happening in our church. I see people volunteering for things that nobody particularly asked them for, but the Holy Spirit moved them. Hey, there's something that needs to be done. I can do that. And they move ahead to help with that area. Others are chosen for office and they respond and say, yes, I will serve in that office. And then they're faithful in that office, whether it's teaching the Sabbath school lesson or preparing the bulletin or all kinds of things all around the church. Now the next thing is loving deeds. When we're, when we're doing loving deeds, who are we being like? Like Jesus. How do... Jesus spent a lot of time preaching, but he spent more time ministering to the needs of the people, being kind and loving and thoughtful and helpful and, and delivering them from their difficulties. He was being loving, loving deed. And then enduring hope is the way another translation puts this third thing, enduring hope. Hope for what? Well, hope in the Bible doesn't it's more than what we usually use the word for in our common uh, discussions and conversation today. In the Bible, hope meant certainty. An enduring certainty. What were the Christians certain about in these early days? That's right. The Jesus who died, were they certain that Jesus died? The Jesus who rose again, were they certain that he rose again? That Jesus who died and rose again and who ministers in heaven, he is coming again. That's the blessed hope. That's the certainty. And that's what we can have. And so Paul says, I'm remembering that. I hope you haven't lost your certainty that Jesus is coming again. And soon. Some churches have lost that. Some individuals have lost that. They've waited and they've waited. I remember back in the 60s, I thought Jesus was coming for sure in 1970, what was it, 1974, somewhere around there. Because you see, uh, I had it all figured out. I figured, you know, Noah preached for how long? 
120 years. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist Church started around in, you know, 1844 was the big thing. So 120 years brings us up to what? 1964. 1964. And then I thought, well, the Bible says there would be a delay. So probably about 10 years. So 1974, Jesus coming for sure. Had it all figured out. It's amazing what a teenager can come up with. So brilliant. Well, turned out to be not so brilliant. <laughs> but how many... <laughs> and so that was, that was what, 40 couple years ago. But do you know, I realize that though I've been looking for the coming of Jesus for all these years, I realize that his coming is truly closer than ever before. That more things in, in this 40 years, more things in the Bible have come to pass than had come to pass then. And plus, my walk with Jesus has been closer and sweeter. And so the time with him has been more precious and more real and deeper. And so I look for his coming because, not because I want to see all the things fulfilled and events taken care of. I long for his coming because I want to be with him. All right, the certainty of your hope, your enduring hope. And then notice all these things are linked together by the last part. Our hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So it, or another version says, because of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the faithfulness, the hope, the love, it all comes from Jesus. He's the source of it all. When we're connected to his heart, we don't lose out on any of these things. We don't lose out on the faithfulness. We don't lose out on the loving deeds. We don't lose out on the enduring hope. But it's only as we're connected in a living way with him, like Jesus said, the branch connected to the vine. Now verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Another version says it this way. We know that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. Now we know, again goes back to that certainty, we have complete confidence that you've been chosen because we know God. We know Him. We know what He's like. We've seen Him in action down through the ages of the Bible, but in our own lives as well. And so we know what kind of God He is, that He does choose you and He has chosen you. You see, before you chose God, God chose you. He initiated it. He's the one who reached into your life and drew you with the cords of love. And do you know he's the initiator of everything in the relationship between you and him every day since you surrendered to him? It's always him initiating. We respond by accepting, by yielding, by surrendering, by believing, by receiving. We, 
we, we take it in, we cherish, we love what God is giving and what He's doing to us. But He's the initiator. And so all the glory goes to Him. It all goes to Him. We won't be getting to heaven and saying, oh boy, it sure was hard. I tell you, I had to really do so much, but it was worth it. No, no, there'll be nobody saying that. We'll all be throwing our crowns at His feet and saying, Lord, it's all You. I gave you a hard time. That's my part. I gave you a hard time. I was stubborn. And I was selfish. And I was w walking astray all the time like the, like the sheep that goes astray. But Lord, you kept after me. And you kept after me. And you, you did it, Lord. To you goes the glory. Now verse 5 says, For our gospel did not come to you in the word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. The gospel came not only with words, but with power by the Holy Spirit. Now, we've had a long time. Not, 2016 was an election year. And it was a long year. And we heard so many words, 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 words. And how much power? How much power to get anything done? It wasn't there. It often isn't there with people, isn't it? And what about churches? Can churches have a problem with words, 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 and nothing really happening? No power. It can happen in a church. And if young people go to that kind of church, what do they soon start to think? What am I doing here? I don't have time for this. I'm out of here. I'm going to go find some place where I can make a difference. Or where I can have some fun. And Paul says that when the gospel came to you, it didn't come just in words. It came in power. The power of the Holy Spirit to do what? To change lives. To change lives. To change attitudes. To change understandings. To make us different people. People with faithfulness and loving deeds and great hope. We need the Holy Spirit and His power today. Don't we? Is this promise to us? It is. Are we willing to receive the Holy Spirit? That's the question. He talks about full assurance of the truth of the gospel. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It brings conviction about what things are true. We can't do it to ourselves, but the Holy Spirit will do it for us. We receive it. We have to see it, accept it, appreciate it, rather than reject it. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it influences the way we lived. It says, you saw the way we lived among you. It wasn't just words. We lived it. Young people need to see adults living it. Living the gospel. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Or we could say, when you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then what's the next verse? He says, and I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. 
See, the Holy Spirit can help us to appreciate and to love all that Jesus means to us so that it transforms us on the inside. In Exodus 19, when God told the people there at Mount Sinai, he says, now I'm going to share the law with you and I want you to obey my voice. What did, that, what did he mean by that? Obey my voice. What does that mean? Obey my voice. What do we usually do with a voice? We listen to the voice. That's right. So when he says obey my voice, he means I want you to really listen. So you get it. Now can you obey it if you don't get it? God says, I want you to really listen. So you get it. And then the next thing he said, I want you to keep my covenant. What does that mean? I want you to keep my covenant. What is that? Now, we usually think, well, that goes along with obey. So I've got to obey all the covenant commands. But what did you start to say, Steve? Cherish. Keep can mean to cherish. To cherish. Like I, like I have this antique watch. I want you to keep it for me till I get back from wherever. That means to cherish it, to treasure it, to hold on to it, to protect it. And so God says, I'm going to make a covenant you, which for God, it's a promise on his part only. He doesn't ask us back from us. He just says, I'm going to pour out all this on you and I want you to treasure what my promises are to you. So I want you to really listen because I'm making some beautiful promises and then I want you to treasure these promises. I want you to consider them as the most important thing. I've recently gone through Psalm 119 in my devotional time and over and over David said, I just love your laws. I want to meditate on them. I want to obey them. I want to understand them. They're meat to me. They're honey to me. They're sweet to me. They're life to me. Was David... Obeying God's voice? Was he keeping the covenant, treasuring the covenant? And do you know what he says at the end, the very last verse? I was so amazed. I just came across it this morning as I was finishing it up. Let's turn there. It's just so amazing. I didn't expect this at all. After hearing all this about the law, the law, wonderful law, beautiful law, great law, I've got to have your law. I hate those who turn away from your law. I'm going to obey your law. I put your law in my heart. I'm going to obey it all the time. And then look what he says in verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. And I says, Lord, I remember your commandments, but I still get going astray. I'm like that sheep who's going the wrong way and forgets the shepherd because he's following a butterfly or something. And I'm just like that sheep, so easy for me to fall and to fail and to get all mixed up and messed up and twisted around. But, oh, Lord, seek your servant. Oh, Lord, you won't forget me. Seek me and draw me back into the right paths, which are your commandments that I don't want to forget. Isn't that great? Okay. Now, where am I here? So we're keeping, we're treasuring God's expressions of love. What do we call God's expressions of love, of commitment to us? 
We call them His promises. God's promises are so important. They're there to be treasured. In fact, it says by these precious promises, we become partakers of what? Remember that verse? I don't, ha- I don't have the reference right in front of me. We become partakers of the divine nature. Now, what kind of a nature are you born with? A human nature, a sinful human nature. Do you want to be controlled by that sinful human nature? What will it lead to? Death. Death for whom? You and who else? Anyone else? The people around you. Because you not only become destroyed, you become a destroyer in the process. Just look at Satan. Look at Calvary and see what happens when sin controls you. You become a destroyer of everyone around you, even God, if He gets in your way. That's what will happen. You're born with that kind of a nature. You want that to control you? If it's not going to control you, you've got to have a stronger nature to control the human nature. And so what kind of nature do you need to have inside of you warring against that human nature? A divine nature. How are you going to get the divine nature? The exceedingly great and precious promises of God. Because that will free you. It will tell you that God is on your side. That God loves you in every situation. God is good. God is good all the time. And that He always wants the best for you and you can come to His throne with confidence. Boldly. To trust that the power of God is going to give victory to you over that human nature that wants to destroy you. Is that good news? That's powerful good news. And only the Holy Spirit can bring you that kind of conviction and confidence. Now, verse 6. Let me read it in the message. It says, Although great trouble accompanies the word, that means the gospel when it comes to you, although great trouble, how much trouble? Great trouble accompanies the word. You were able to take great joy from the Holy Spirit. Taking the trouble with the joy and the joy with the trouble. Have you had any trouble since you became a Christian? I've had trouble. I'm sure you have. Some of you have a lot of trouble. I'm sorry. But that happens. He says great trouble here, doesn't he? But then what does he say the Holy Spirit has to give with the trouble? Great something else. Great what? Joy! You know, I think about the Holy Spirit being a, a, a teacher and a cleanser and an empowerer and a sanctifier. But I haven't thought about the Holy Spirit as being a joy giver. But that's what he says right here. He gives joy, great joy. So yes, Jesus didn't promise a rose garden, did he? He didn't promise that life would be free of pain. But he does promise to provide joy. He does promise. Are we open to it? That's it. Or has trouble closed our spirit to the joy? How do we get open to the joy? I like what one said, one person said. I heard it, I think it was on the Christian radio station. She said, Every believer should preach the gospel to himself or herself every day. Every believer should preach the gospel to himself every day. 
Now, does that mean you need to make up a whole sermon? That's not what it means. It means remind yourself that God is good, that God is on your side, that He's committed to your salvation, that He doesn't work on the basis of deserving. He works on the basis of need and His grace. Preach that to yourself every day. Every day, every day, every day. That will open your heart to the joy the Holy Spirit wants to give you. And then in verse 7, he talks about being an example. He says, you folks are an example to other believers. And he mentions the places where people have heard about it. Verse 8 says, from, for from you the word of God has sounded forth. And he talks about these different places. Let me read it in the message. It says it very clearly, I think. It says, the word has gotten around. Your lives are echoing the master's word. Not only in the provinces, but all over the place. The news of your faith in God is out. We don't even have to say anything anymore. You're the message. People come up and tell us how you received us with open arms, how you deserted the dead idols of your old life so you could embrace and serve God, the true God. They marvel at how expectantly you await the arrival of His Son. Isn't that something? Would you like things to be said like you, about that? Uh, things like that be said about you? Actually, it's true. God has been working in this congregation and word is getting around what God is doing here. You know, there have been articles in the, in the conference connection newsletter that goes around about the Laconia Church. You've seen them over the years about how we sponsored this and how the Lord blessed us to take care of that, needs of other places, how He abundantly answered our prayers and blessed us in many ways. I've told the conference officers about your prayer life here, about the way we conduct business meetings. And the word has gotten out that the Holy Spirit's doing something special in Laconia. And you are an example to other believers. You are the message. Because you're allowing the Holy Spirit to put it in action in your lives. God is working. He's working here. He's working in you. And do you think He's done? Do you think He has some more planned for us? Do you think He has even bigger and better plans than what He's accomplished so far? Praise His name. God is on the move. The kingdom of God is on the march. And the kingdom of Satan trembles. Let us pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, You are mighty and You are great. You are wise. And You are wonderful. Wonderful at what You're doing for us and what You're doing in us. Oh, Lord, we don't deserve all that you do for us, all that you do in us. You don't deserve to be instruments of your grace, to be even servants in your kingdom. But you make us children and ambassadors. And you put within us love and kindness and thoughtfulness and caring. We care for one another here and we love and respect one another. 
And we reach out with grace to the community seeking who we can help and how we can bless. And it's all of you. It's all because of what you are and what you're doing. And we give to you the praise. We put ourselves in your hands, Father, for you to do the more that you want to do. For you to transform us and make us more like Jesus and for you to use us more to reach more lives, to help others find real fulfillment in life and in eternity. Here we are, Father. Use us. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name. We take our hymnals and turn to number 108. Amazing grace. We've talked about grace. And here's one of these favorite hymns. Amazing grace. Number 108. Let's stand as we sing it together.
benediction is taken from 2 Peter chapter 3. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, now and for all eternity.